the holidays are coming up. I can't wait to hear what my favorite people got me for the holidays. Hey, Alexa, what'd you get me for the holidays? Sorry, I'm not sure. Hey, Google, what'd you get me for the holidays? Sorry, I don't understand. You may ask yourself, how do I work this? My guest this week looks at the corona economy through the lens of David Byrne's concert film, American Utopia. Byrne, of course, is famous as the lead singer for the Talking Heads, so we'll be shaking up the theme music this week. Hey, Alexa, you like the Talking Heads? I don't look at people that way. You may ask yourself, where is that love sort of movie? This is my final podcast of 2020. Thanks to all my listeners and guests. It'll be back in 2021, bigger and better than ever. And remember, surviving 2020 is a necessary but not sufficient condition for global domination. Booyah! So let's get right to my interview with trend forecasting guru and music aficionado, Andrew Lipsman. I'm very excited to have Andrew Lipsman on the show today. Among other things, he's currently a principal analyst at eMarketer, where he writes on all things forecasting and consumer behavior. He's a former SVP at Comscore. Educationally, he's got a bachelor's from Duke and an MBA from Northwestern, which makes him both a blue devil and a wildcat. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I think it's going to be one of the most fun and creative podcasts that we've done. But before we get into that, there's a little game. I like to play with guests when they come on the show to get to know them a little better, the game I call the lightning round. The lightning round! I am so good at lightning rounds! I majored in lightning rounds. Are you ready for the lightning round, Andrew? I'm ready. Let's do it. What is your hometown? Highland Park, Illinois, which interestingly enough is the exact same place as uh, your last guest, Michelle Medansky. That's right. I actually looked up famous people who've lived in or are from Highland Park, Illinois, and I learned that in the 90s, that's where Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen lived. Like, Did you go over to their houses to hang out? Uh, not to hang out, but we definitely did some drive-bys during the Bulls years. Yes, I was lucky enough to grow up uh, from the ages of 10 to 18 is when the Bulls were working, winning their championships. So it was a nice time to be a kid and, and following the Bulls run. Probably a good neighborhood to go trick-or-treating in, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. They always brought the, the good stuff. We're going to talk a lot about music today. Uh, also from Highland Park, Illinois, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. And one of my favorite artists, Grace Slick, who sang some of the all-time great rock and roll anthems of Somebody to Love. And White Rabbit. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And, and on the other side is also known for singing on We Built This City on Rock and Roll, considered by many to be the worst song in rock and roll history. We built this city on rock and roll. I actually did not know that about Grace Slick. Billy Corgan, I did, and that was one of the first concerts I ever went to. If you were not in the research and insights business, what would you be doing? Well, in college, I really fell in love with the idea of screenwriting, um, not uh, something that I think is necessarily the most realistic profession for most people. So if, if I said, what would I, what would I be doing more realistically? Maybe like management consulting? What book or podcast would you recommend these days? The book that I've really loved is 
Rory Sutherland's Alchemy. Um, he's a brilliant advertising guy who's just a student of consumer psychology. Um, so I highly recommend that. From the podcast, uh, I, I've been listening to Michael Lewis's podcast series. He's got two seasons and the most recent one, uh, which was all about the impact of coaching, was really interesting. Michael Lewis, one of my all-time favorite writers, Moneyball, The Big Short. What is your favorite website or app that many people haven't heard of? Well, people in my industry uh, probably have heard of it, but I have to give a lot of credit to Modern Retail. Um, it's a sort of a trade publication, uh, an offshoot of Digiday um, that I think just does exceptionally good coverage of the retail and e-commerce space. What was the last thing you bought online? The last thing kind of boring was vitamin D, though uh, it is adjacent to uh, the coronavirus and that there is some research that suggests it may be helpful in combating uh, different illnesses. Uh, but also, I just consistently test low for vitamin D like many people in northern climate. So I try and keep those levels up. What is the most unusual thing you've bought online? Keep it safe for work, please. So the most unusual thing I bought recently was a laser tag set. Um, now I have small kids, they're seven and four. Uh, so that seems like a pretty normal purchase. But the reason that I bought it actually was that we were going on vacation this summer with my wife's family and I didn't buy it for the kids. We were staying at a, a family camp and I bought it for myself and my brothers-in-law so that we could play late night laser tag. Kids are a great excuse for buying all kinds of things you couldn't get away with otherwise. What was one of your favorite brands growing up? My, I think my favorite brand growing up was Nike. Obviously, there's the Michael Jordan tie-in. What's so interesting when I think about Nike today is that I go all the way back and I think about the very first pair of Nikes that I got, and they came in that orange box with the white Nike and the swoosh. And still to this day, you get Nikes in that orange box. There is something about it that is very resonant. It's not even Nike's like brand color. And it just hits me in a certain way that it's, it's resonant. And then I also have this feeling whenever I see the original Air Jordan sneakers, there is something about it that just feels good to me. And so I think the really great brands somehow connect with you on that deeper emotional level um, in a way that you can't quantify or, or really adequately describe. What's one of your favorite brands today? So one of my favorite brands today is Phil's Coffee. Um, I, I love my morning coffee. It's the best part of the day. Um, I found myself waking up earlier and earlier during the pandemic and just enjoying these quiet hours before my kids get up with Phil's Coffee. So I have been ordering it um, consistently. And there's something about the brand that I love. There are so many really pretentious coffee brands today. Now, this is a high quality coffee brand, but I find that it's uh, not pretentious. And I, I really there's something about it every morning that just makes me feel good. High quality and not pretentious. That's what we're all striving for these days. With everything going on in the world right now, what brand do you think really gets it? Uh, one brand I've been really impressed with during the pandemic is Lululemon. Um, I'd call out their acquisition of Mirror as being what I think will be looked at uh, as one of the all-time great acquisitions as it moved them from a aspirational apparel brand into digital fitness, which is a huge emerging category. I also love the way that they have just been able to kind of effectively ride the athleisure trend, but then also given the heavy brick and mortar business still managed to see growth given how much apparel retail at brick and mortar has been killed because they've been able to take so much of their business direct to consumer and online. Um, so I think they're just putting themselves in an unbelievable position, weathering the current storm 
um, and they're going to come out of this so much stronger. Obviously, a lot of apparel brands are struggling with people not going to the office as much, people not going out to events in the evening, but Lululemon seems to be one of those kind of figuring out a new niche. What are you binge watching these days? So it's actually surprising. If you had asked me back in March, as we realized we were entering the pandemic, uh, if I'd be doing a lot of binge watching, I would have said, yes, there's so much great TV out there to catch up on. And what I have found is that I've been doing surprisingly little, um, really almost no binge watching. I've watched a few series all the way through, but mostly, you know, a season here or there. I'm diversifying a lot of my viewing habits. And I think that I'm, uh, in particular, I've been watching a lot of concerts and music and uh, exploring that in a way that I haven't in several years. That's great. And we'll talk a lot more about music today as we get into it. As you, and first of all, thank you for being part of the lightning round. The lightning round! Lightning round! Lightning rounds. As you think about your own behavior, I know, like me, people who study consumer behavior, a lot of our insights start with ourselves. What habits have you seen change and evolve in your own life? So the first one was uh, obviously quitting my gym membership. And in the early days of the pandemic, as we started to encounter this new reality, both myself, my wife, and my kids, one thing that we did in the first several weeks was we did family yoga at home. So we started doing, you know, YouTube yoga videos. Um, and then after a while, as the weather started to break uh, in May, um, I one day just kind of decided to forced gump it and just picked up and started running. Um, and I haven't really stopped. It's, I am somebody, by the way, who is bad at running. I'm very slow. I do not do well with running habits. But during the pandemic, because I don't have the lost commute time, I've actually uh, run almost every single day for the past five months. Well, you are force gumping it. You just start running. You just keep going. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And you mentioned uh, watching more concerts and uh, as well as, I mean, you know, online magic shows are having a moment. There are a lot of new kinds of entertainment experiences that are being transitioned online. Just bringing events into the home. Um, and, and, you know, there's still nothing like a live event, uh, but there's I think we're really starting to figure out what it's like to bring entertainment into the home. So, yeah, I've done things like trivia nights, not going out to bars to do that. So bring that into the home concert live streams. I've uh, been doing, like many people, a lot more cooking um, in particular. I've, I've started to try and perfect a variety of different Asian stir fries. Um, and then with more cooking comes more washing dishes. So I would say it, the constant stream of washing dishes, cleaning, doing laundry, especially with two young kids, um, is becoming its own version of deja vu. Sounds like you're using your time very effectively. Some lifestyle experimentation, trying out different things, different kinds of cuisines. And so as you think about your own habits changing, you're in the profession of also thinking about how consumer habits change and how business habits change. What's your general take on, on how habits change and how that's manifesting itself right now in the corona economy? Very early on, there was this notion of, is this the new normal? Right. And, and this was the topic of conversation back in March and April. Um, and I remember back then I was kind of pushing back on that narrative. Um, yes, there was a new normal that was emerging during that period of time. But that was still when we kind of thought that things would not last more than several weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, and I didn't expect a lot of those habits to set in over an extended period of time. And I thought most activities, with a few exceptions, would 
essentially kind of revert back to normal. Um, my thinking has changed quite a bit on that, uh, most notably because some of the changes have been so profound, uh, but then also because this has been such a protracted uh, period of time where habits have had a lot of time to set in and for consumers to realize um, maybe what aspects of their life are now better, uh, which are worse, and you know what the right balance and what they want to do with their time going forward might be. You know, a lot of times there's a, a a lot of inertia in consumer behavior where we do the same thing over and over again. I was talking to another guest who was talking about life stage transitions. You know, marketers are always very interested in that. Like if you could target the people who are about to have a wedding, you know that their behavior is going to change on a ton of different dimensions. Well, it's kind of like we've all gone through a humongous life stage transition all at once. So there are all kinds of new behaviors out there that companies might be able to to tap into in some way. Absolutely. Um, and, and I would even go a step further because most of the time when these these life stage transitions happen, it's contextualized to you, the person, or maybe your family unit. Um, it's not happening at scale. And so I think much broader societal changes happen when there's coordination around it, um, when we're all doing the same thing at the same time. Um, so I don't think we, we've ever seen anything like this in, in our lifetimes in terms of the potential to affect really lasting changes to how we do everything. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the work of Stephen Jay Gould, a very famous evolutionary biologist. And when he was talking about how evolution worked, he said there are long periods of time where not much happens, and then short periods of time where a lot happens. He called it punctuated equilibrium. He was a big fan of baseball, and he said baseball's the same way. It's not action, action, action. It's long periods of time where it doesn't seem like a lot's going on, and all of a sudden, boom, a big play, and a lot changes. And if, if you like baseball, you like that suspense of something huge might happen at one moment. And it strikes me that consumer behavior is the same way. And we're in one of those periods of, of rapid change. Yeah. And what's interesting is that if you think about baseball, um, a lot of times it's a series of subtle changes that are stacking up um, and they kind of reach a crescendo together. Um, the last time I really considered myself a baseball fan, I'm a White Sox fan, was back in their 2005 championship run. And the way that they were able to win the World Series that year was they had a couple of very subtle things that helped the team. Um, they, they had a great leadoff hitter who had a career year, and he just always got on base. Um, so when he got on base, then he would advance. And then the White Sox ended up being particularly good just because of that at getting one or two runs on the board that year. They also happened to have a couple of pitchers who were like totally different pitchers if they were pitching with a lead versus pitching from behind. So these subtle things that you might not think about stacked on top of each other. And the White Sox just ended up going on this amazing run that year because they were consistently able to stack those small changes. Um, I think about a lot of the trends now, what's happening is that we've been seeing some of these trends emerging um, on some level, but, you know, on kind of a, a minor gradient. And then all of a sudden, as all of them coalesce together in this period of time, they kind of explode and then it becomes totally game changing. It's interesting how those pitchers were able to adjust their style based on are they winning? Are they behind? It's, it's very much context dependent. And I know you're a big believer in the importance of thinking about context. Yeah, I mean, I, I think context is everything. Um, 
you know, we, I'm in the predictions business, right? And so um, I I think a lot about how people get things wrong because of different biases that they have. Um, I think there are sort of overarching biases towards rational economic principles um, in terms of how people behave. And they don't always kind of move along the lines of rational economics. They are humans. They're motivated by different things. Um, I think how you experience everything is very dependent on context. And there's a lot of implications, you know, for how you market to people, um, what brands they're likely to buy. Um, So I think it's very pervasive right now. Um, One of the things you and I were talking about before jumping on here was how context changes um, certain experiences. And, And I was talking about how I recently watched American Utopia, the David Byrne uh, concert special. It was really a Broadway show um, that was recently on HBO. And I had actually gone to see the concert live about a year and a half or two years ago and loved it. I'm a big David Byrne and Talking Heads fan. And when I watched it recently on HBO, even though it shouldn't have been as profound of an experience as it was seeing live, I actually got a lot more out of it and it resonated with me in a completely different way than it had before. Yeah. So I recently watched American Utopia on your recommendation. I went ahead and uh, and got HBO for it. So I really recommend everybody out there, check it out. If you're looking for it free streaming online, it's it's not available, but it's totally worth the HBO subscription. You can even just get the the trial. And I I really loved it. I'm also a big David Byrne talking heads fan. You know, I was I was struck first just by the visuals of it. I mean, it's it's very it's it's very minimalist. It's very monochromatic sort of everything is in a kind of the same blue gray silver palette and he actually talks a little bit in the course of the concert about how they they wanted a minimalist look they wanted to sort of strip away everything that was superfluous because they wanted to focus on on the people on the stage you know they're they're all wearing the same suit kind of the david byrne oversized suit they're all they're all in bare feet Nobody's sitting down. Everybody's standing up, regardless of what uh, what instrument they're playing. So, uh, just the the visual look and feel of it was so interesting, but so much energy. So, I, I really enjoyed it from that point of view. And you're right. You you see it now, and there are kind of all of these ways to think about it in terms of consumer behavior during Corona. But I guess you saw it once pre-Corona, and you see it now multiple times post-Corona, and that context totally changed your perception of it. Yeah. Well, so the first thing that jumped out to me is different. And by the way, none of this was intended by David Byrne because the concert was filmed uh, pre-pandemic. So the context just changed my interpretation of it. Um, but what I would probably consider my favorite song of all time and is, is certainly the most played on my Spotify list is This Must Be The Place. Which has the lyric that many of you have probably heard, home is where I want to be. And when that lyric came on, it just hit me in a different way because I felt like this moment in Corona, it's all about home, shelter in place, um, sort of running towards security, thinking about the things that are maybe most important to your life, family, all, all of those things were kind of enveloped in this notion of home as, as I heard that song.
So that was kind of sticking in my brain. Um, and then a bit later, uh, one of his more popular recent songs came on called Everybody's Coming to My House. And I was just like, huh, house, home. Okay, there's kind of a theme here, right? Um, which again was resonant because of Corona. And I kind of thought about that in the context of everybody's coming to my house. It, it kind of, I got this image at the time of uh, how everybody was coming into my home through Zoom. Like everybody from work who I only saw in the work context was now coming to my house and seeing my personal life and my kids running on screen and all of that. Uh, but then also it was kind of the, the middle part of the pandemic it was also that time where a lot of us, you know, started to think about, well, how do we safely socialize in different ways? The weather's breaking, we can be outside, right? So there was this kind of adapting to the new reality um, and this normalization. So that's kind of what, what jumped out to me on that song. Yeah, really interesting. You know, when you talk about that first song, This Must Be The Place, people would recognize it if they heard it, if it doesn't jump out to you. But some of the lines from it, home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I also really like the line in there where he says, I'm just an animal looking for a home. So there was kind of that hunkering down survival kind of mindset early on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, the, you know, the next song you mentioned, Everybody's Coming to My House, which is another one that, you know, people will, will recognize if they hear it. I'll, I'll drop in a few clips. Uh, some of the lines, everybody's coming to my house. I'm never going to be alone. We're all only tourists in this life. Only tourists, but the view is nice. And I thought one of the other really interesting things about that song, Everybody's Coming to My House, is that when David Byrne introduced it, he said that when when he sang it, to him, it sort of had one kind of connotation to it originally, was that all these people are coming to my house. I don't know if I'll ever be alone again. I don't know how I feel about all these people coming to my house. But he's talked about how other people have performed it. And it just seems to have a different kind of vibe when other people do it, even if the, the lyrics remain the same. It's more of a feeling of like welcoming and inclusion and invitation. I, I guess another example of context. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, too, because he struck this dichotomy, which is where he said um, it was almost like, OK, everybody's here. Now it's time to leave. <laughs> That's how he sort of approached it originally. And he heard a much more optimistic version. And I think um, a lot of the concert itself was was kind of understanding that we're um, in this weird place, um, but there were themes of um, optimism, really. I mean, the, the whole album is called American Utopia, um, and it's interesting to contrast that with the fact that we're living in a weird sort of dystopia at this point in time. It does have a very strong optimistic feel in this context of dystopia. That's a really great way to phrase it. Um, and then the, the last song that jumped out to me on this house and home theme was uh, one that maybe the most people are familiar with, Burning Down the House. Cool, 
the sort of classic uh, Talking Heads anthem. And, you know, that struck me as kind of the end of Corona. What happens, right, when we re-enter this new reality, uh, when, when the pandemic is in the rearview mirror, um, and lots of things will have changed. I mean, we will have literally burned down the house in many ways. And the question then is, what's left standing? What is this new reality going to be? It's going to be very different than what was before it. I've increasingly been thinking of a book called The Great Good Place by Ray Oldenburg, a sociologist, and he talks about the three places in life. You got the first place, which is home, the second place, which is work, and then all these third places, the parks, the coffee shops, the bars, the restaurants, the clubs. And one of the trends, obviously, is all those things are moving into the home. Work has moved into the home. All of those places of entertainment and connection and all of the happy hours are now on Zoom and in the home and all of the, the entertainment, the magic shows, the, the concerts, all of those things moving into the home. And then at some point, that's, that's going to end. Hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll get a vaccine and then we'll, we'll be looking at this in the rearview mirror, like you said, and then we will burn down that house. We will burn down that notion of the home as a place where all these things happen. And a lot of things are going to change. So I know you as a, as a forecasting professional thought about what kinds of things are going to change when we burn down that Corona house. So I think there's just a, tons of industries that will never be the same. One of the first ones that I think about, and um, maybe is most obvious to everyone is grocery, how we shop for groceries. Um, this is something that's fundamental to everybody. And it is, when I think about e-commerce, right, it, it has been the last major consumer retail category to move online. Only about four to 5% of category sales are happening online. Um, whereas many categories are now at 30, 40, 50%. Uh, but it's a huge category. So when I think about the change um, and, and what that predicts for the future, the first thing I, I think about is this notion of switch points. So this is sort of a binary, um, do you do this or not? Um, and it's not always the most predictive measure, but it is a precondition for other things to happen. So uh, what you had was that a relatively modest percentage of people prior to the pandemic had ever shopped for groceries online, um, only about 30% of people. And that number has shot up, you know, to like over 50% or so now have done it. Um, so the switch point happens in which people now are online grocery consumers. Um, the other side of it is that you had a lot of consumers who maybe dabbled in it. They were adept at e-commerce, had shopped for groceries a bit, uh, but didn't really do it. Myself it would be a good example. I'd say we pretty much only did online orders when we were coming back from vacation, you know, two or three times a year, the fridge is empty and you really want to pay for that convenience. Uh, but here in the pandemic, we've probably ordered online, you know, seven or eight times now. So there's, there's some real habit formation where you take those existing light users and they become, you know, somewhat more frequent users. Um, and that can totally change the the scale and the, and the dynamics of the whole industry. One thing I've seen in looking at, for example, Amazon sales after Prime Day, you know, Prime Day was a little different this year because they kept moving it around. But historically, of course, there's you know a huge amount of Amazon sales on Prime Day. But then the 
but then the shopping on Amazon sort of comes back to a new baseline. Like it doesn't go back to where it was before. It establishes a new elevated baseline. After people have tried something, they realize, oh, that was pretty easy. It's going to be easy enough to, to repeat it. Uh, we we kind of see that step function in a lot of kinds of behavior. I guess you see that as well. Yeah, the step function is really interesting. Um, this is something that, so I've been following the e-commerce space for 15 years. And one of the interesting dynamics that you would see if you charted the history quarter by quarter of e-commerce over time is that Q1, Q2, and Q3 are fairly uniform, a little bit of variation, but not a lot in terms of quarterly sales. Um, then you get to Q4 and you get this big jump up. Then you get into the following year and Q1 comes down a little bit from Q4, but it's really kind of at a permanently elevated space um, over where Q1, Q2, and Q3 were the prior year. So if you actually chart this out over time, it really resembles stairs. Like you see an actual step function uh, yeah. occur. And so the question is, why? What is it about Q4 that kind of locks in that behavior in a new way? And I think that it is the concentrated period of shopping activity that's happening during the holidays. Um, it's a scramble. And as people each year acclimated to e-commerce and different behaviors on e-commerce and did it more frequently. And then, you know, new channels like mobile came along and all these things every year, just people had a bit more incentive to kind of take that next step in their own behavior. And then once they had done that, you know, there was one year where people maybe had done their first mobile commerce purchase for the first time. Um, those behaviors then lock in going forward. Um, maybe not to the same level that they did during the concentrated period, but again, it's going to be elevated over that point at which they were at before this. Yeah, that period of the holidays is a period of experimentation. And so maybe you're trying new ways of buying like a mobile purchase or you're looking for new categories. You're like, I never thought about looking for a laser tag set, but I guess I could probably do that online. And so it just it broadens your scope of what's possible on e-commerce. And that tends to stay with people. Yeah. And even think about what's happening today. There's a lot of innovation in social commerce. Um, well, if you're in the holiday season, all of a sudden your mind, your brain is primed for discovery. And if you see new brands and products introduced to you in a social context, that may be somewhat foreign to you, uh, but it resonates because of the context of that moment. And so maybe you make your first purchase directly over Instagram. And then going forward, you know, maybe you make a few purchases. Maybe this is something then that builds into a much bigger segment of the e-commerce space over time. Some people have said that as a result of coronavirus, people are going to be less consumeristic, less materialistic afterwards. I tend to think that if you look at past economic disruptions, consumer behavior usually bounces back. Uh, what, what's your take on how consumerism might change? Um, well, so in general, I, I agree. I think people will bounce back in terms of the psychology of what they want. Um, their aspirations shift, right? So if, if you just think about their own personal aesthetics and what they wear, people are not buying uh, formal wear or nice looking suits because the occasions aren't there. Uh, but they're probably spending a little bit more on their athleisure. Um, so it's just a different way of, of thinking about uh, what they want to aspire to in this moment. Um, I think one of the other interesting shifts that, that we've seen started to happen is this um, shift away from procrastination and 
consumers being more proactive. I don't know. I think there's a lot of factors at play here, by the way. Um, maybe some of it is just more time and more time in front of screens to consider purchases or what you're going to do with your time. Um, but I also think there are these elements of scarcity that got introduced into our psyche early in the pandemic when you didn't know if there would be toilet paper, you didn't know if there would be that grocery delivery spot. So you take action more quickly rather than waiting to the last moment. Um, and, and I think these habits are starting to form in a different way. I see it uh, with the holiday season that there does seem to be this impetus uh, with, with concerns about shipageddon for people to make their purchases early. I think it's certainly helped along by Prime Day happening in mid-October and kind of getting an early kickoff to the holiday season. Uh, but there does seem to be a more proactive consumer. Um, we're also seeing this, by the way, uh, we're recording the day before the presidential election. Um, we've seen record early voting. I think consumers aren't taking any chances and making sure that their, their vote is going to be counted. Um, so they got out early and they sent in their mail-in ballots or they got out to the early voting polls um, so that they didn't leave anything to chance. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about all of the early voting as kind of another indication of this notion of a more proactive, less procrastinating consumer or individual. That's a really interesting parallel. There's been, of course, a longer term trend that a lot of people have talked about kind of away from things toward experiences. So restaurants and vacations had a had a good run there for a decade or so and have obviously been hurt right now. How do you see that evolving as Corona goes on and then hopefully post Corona? So first off, what's happened is that as all of the instances um, of these portions of consumer spending have evaporated, um, events, travel, restaurants, you know, all of these things have, have gone away, services, spending on services, hair care, things like that. Um, those budgets now are getting redirected to retail. So, so people are actually, what's propping up the retail consumer economy right now is that a good portion of people do have savings and, and have these funds to kind of redirect elsewhere. Um, now, what I think is, is likely to happen is once we come out of the pandemic that you will just get uh, a huge boom in a lot of these categories that have taken a hit. Um, not all of them will come back the same way. So for example, I think gyms are going to take longer to come back. People are just going to feel a little bit less comfortable kind of gripping equipment that other people are sweating on or doing exercise classes. Travel, some people will probably be concerned for a while, but a lot of other people will really look to splurge on that extravagant vacation um, that, you know, because they've probably missed several of them over the past year. Um, I'm also really interested if next year there will be just a completely off the charts summer wedding season. Um, I, I still don't know where we'll be at in terms of widespread vaccination, but if that's far enough along that, you know, weddings are, are broadly safe, um, you could just see this massive boom in weddings where people who are of that age, you know, could have weddings almost every weekend throughout the summer. Well, I've got just a couple questions left for you. You've been really generous with your time. I really appreciate it. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because you're a professional in the field of forecasting and predictions and thinking about the future, which is obviously a very difficult thing to do. 
what are some of the heuristics and ideas that you use for thinking about the future? And what are some of the common pitfalls that people run into when they think about the future? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot about the different biases that um, people kind of rely on. Well, one of the, the first things, that, especially when you are sort of in a specific industry, you start to hear the same cliches about a lot of things over and over. It becomes this conventional wisdom. Um, and I would just say, interrogate that conventional wisdom and see to what extent it's actually true. Um, it may not broadly apply at all. It might be even exactly wrong. Um, so I think that's a, a source of potentially being better at, at understanding what's going on is um, taking the time to think through whether something is true or not. Um, I think a lot of predictions go wrong because they pattern match to what is the simplest available analogy. Um, and, and really what I would say is sometimes that may apply, but in most cases there are multiple analogies or, or mental models that can apply to a situation. And I think getting good at prediction is about understanding, you know, the handful of, of models that might apply and kind of running the prediction through all of those models and seeing which ones you think, uh, are going to be the most determinant of what happens in the future. Um, we talked a little bit about kind of rational, applying rational economic principles. This is a big Rory Sutherland thing that people love to live in this world of certainty and metrics and economics and, you know, how these forces work or, or should work in theory. And the reality is that is not how humans behave. Um, so I lean a lot more strongly into behavioral and consumer psychology. Um, and then biasing towards the context of the moment. I think this is, it's so critical because again, if you apply all these historical models in, into your thinking, sometimes what you miss is what's different now. Um, you, you get a lot of this. There's a lot of predictions about the presidential election, for example, and they'll run through all the history and, you know, all these different variables of what matters, the economy and, uh, you know, polling and all these different things where there's a certain degree of certainty and they've dealt with before. Um, but we need to recognize this moment in presidential politics is so much different. You have a candidate uh, with Donald Trump, who I think it's fair to say is unlike any other. Um, so you can't apply a lot of the same rational uh, analysis to him. Uh, but also the context of this moment of the pandemic backdrop. We haven't seen something like that since uh, for 100 years. Mm hmm. Um, and everything is different. The media environment is so different. Social media is a huge change. Um, so there's just a lot of new variables or new variables that are on a much bigger scale in this election cycle than others. So I would place much more of your prediction thinking along those lines of what's different than what has happened in the past. Yeah, I really like your application of consumer psychology rather than economic rational person models, because I think it's such a better sense of how people uh, make decisions and change their behavior. One of the things that I've always looked at historically in thinking about predictions of the future is that people are a lot better at predicting what's going to happen to technology than they are to what's going to happen to consumer behavior. If you go back to the 1950s or 1960s, which was a time when a lot of people were thinking about the future and they were very engaged with how technology was going to change the world. Well, they had very accurate predictions of things like microwave ovens. They said, oh, there are going to be these ovens that will cook your entire dinner in two minutes. And they got that right. But 
the way that they always presented those predictions was to say, well, when the oven cooks your meal in two minutes, the housewife is going to have so much more free time to sit around and read magazines without thinking that, well, the housewife is actually going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a business executive. You know, they totally missed the social trends and the behavioral changes rather than the technological ones. That's the hard part, right? Understanding the second order, second and third order effects of all these changes. Um, so Bill Gates has this great quote that he says, we tend to overestimate change within the next two years and underestimate change over the next 10. Um, I think about that a lot in terms of how trends, uh, we get excited about a technology and we say, oh, this is going to change the world in two years. And then you fast forward two years and almost nothing has happened. Uh, there's usually so many other enablers, market enablers, technological enablers, consumer behavioral enablers that need to kind of come together and coalesce at the right moment in time. And when they do, you hit this inflection point and that's when something can take off exponentially. Um, that is really, really hard to predict. So I always say, you know, estimating magnitude is hard, both in terms of the amount uh, but also that time dimension. It's really difficult to cast those things forward because you have to figure out how multiple variables will interact over some period of time. Um, the direction is easier. So I, I try to, I, I'm not afraid to make a prediction that puts a specific number at a specific point in time. Uh, but if you want to understand the prediction, it's about understanding the why behind it and, and the directionality more than necessarily getting that number right at that period of time. My final question that I ask all my guests, what's your one best piece of advice for helping people survive and thrive at this time? Oh, I would say take advantage of, of the extra time that you have and, and the excuse to disrupt your pattern, to do some of the things that, um, that you want to do and that you haven't had time to. I know in the hustle and bustle of life and having young children, um, it's hard sometimes to carve out those moments for the things that are most important to you. Um, for me personally, I have found that this running habit and the time that that gives me alone every day with my thoughts um, has spurred also all different forms of creativity and thinking through problems and thinking through work issues and analysis in, in a totally different way. So I've found this moment of disruption for me to be um, very constructive, you know, despite all the uh, impending doom and fear and anxiety that comes along with living inside of a pandemic. Find constructive ways to disrupt your patterns. I like that. I'm going to take that advice to heart. Andrew Lipsman, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Please share, like, smash the subscribe button. Remember, it doesn't work if you just click it. You have to smash it. Also, kiss my ass, 2020. And to take us out, we've got the official trailer from David Byrne's American Utopia, and that officially makes it not copyright infringement, but promotion. Seriously, though, just subscribe to HBO and watch it already. You're really going to enjoy it and admit it. You're bored with Netflix and The Mandalorian. And with HBO, you also get Unlimited South Park. And go ahead, while you're at it, just watch The Sopranos and Game of Thrones again and just mentally live in a simpler time. Until next time... Be safe and be sane, my friends. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. 
And that's what the show is. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. Through the connections between all of us. <laughs> 